Good afternoon, family. It's good to see you all. It's been a minute for me, and I hope you guys are doing well. Um, it is a joy to be here today in front of you guys, especially who are fathers. Um, it is a great honor to be here with you as a family, to talk to you, to love you, to see you face to face. And I get the joy to say Happy Father's Day to you and to you all. We are praying for you. You are not alone in this race, in this walk. And we hope that you get to grow together as we get to see you grow as a father. If you have a copy of God's word, would you please open it um, to Mark 7, verses 24 through 30. Again, Mark 7, verses 24 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. He, meaning Jesus, got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape the notice. Instead, immediately, after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and he, she was asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, Because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. When she went back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Let's pray, family. Father, I thank you that the words we just sang ring true about you. That you are a good, good father. You love, you care for your children despite who they are, especially me. I am grateful for who you are. I pray for a time as we open God's words together that we get to understand who you are even more. And I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, filling and building up this body for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, my name is Baba Roque, and I am one of the family members here at um, Reconciliation Church, and I welcome you guys here. I greatly missed you guys dearly. Um, Last week, my wife and I and my mother were able to fly to Miami, Florida for a funeral. I was able to say goodbye to my family and particularly my uncle, and we got to celebrate his life. But of course, while we're in Miami, I took the opportunity for my wife to finally visit some of my members of my Cuban family, particularly my dad and my grandmother who were from Cuba, and then my two little sisters. And of course, when we came over to the house and we sat outside and had some food, um, my dad loves to do this thing is like, let's make fun of Bapo and let's tell the stories of him as a little child. And I was like, all right, buckle up, here we go. And one of the things my dad started to tell was how he would teach us Spanish as little kids. And he would start teaching by pointing out certain things like this is red, so what does this mean? We're like, rojo, like good. He's like, this is a car, what does it mean? He's like. Carro. I'm like, ah, good. And eventually he started teaching those words that, you know, we probably should learn as a little kid. And particularly my little sister or my older sister, Ashley, would learn the word feo, which means ugly. 
And what she would do for such a longest time was call me Feo. And as a little kid, as a little child, when you hear someone say something such a long time, you think, and that's her name, right? So for the longest time, I thought my name was Feo and ugly. And one time my dad decided to take us to a homestead, which is a racetrack. And we decided to go watch cars just go in circles, circles, circles for hours. And eventually my dad saw that myself and my sister were really hungry. So he's like, all right, I'm gonna get hot dogs and get some drinks. Fact number one for fathers, you probably shouldn't do this, but this is what my dad did. My dad looked at my little sister who was five and myself who was three. He was like, stay here, I'll be right back. He goes back, gets some hot dogs, comes back, looks at my sister, gives her a Sprite, gives her a dog, looks at me and I was gone. I just ran away at a racetrack. And my dad is panicking. He's freaking out. He's like, where is Bapo? And he's asking my sister. She's like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. She's like, no, no, where is Bapo? And my dad is freaking out. He's screaming into multiple different languages and different words. They're trying to figure out where I am. And eventually he's asking neighbors. No one can find me. He's asking other people. No one can find them. And out of nowhere, the PA says me here. Well, attention all people who are here at Homestead. We welcome you here. I have some exciting news. We have a beautiful baby boy who is up in our booth um, trying to figure out where his family is. Hey, son, what is your name? And I said, Pharaoh. And my dad screamed as loud as he can and ran straight up with my sister and got me out of the booth. That re the reality of my dad with that story is how desperate he was when he actually lost his child at a racetrack when he said to a three-year-old, stay here. But that desperateness of him trying to find what he desired the most is a lesson that we're going to talk about today with this Gentile woman and her encounter with Jesus. But I want to ask this question as we dive into the word, and I want to use the famous commercial of what would you do for a clonic bar? Delicious. I'm fluffy, I know. Um, but I want to ask this question for you. In your most desperate situations in life, what do you depend on? In your toughest times, your toughest moments when you're out of breath, what do you depend on? Who do you go to when you go on the rabbit trail in your mind and begin to drown in the quicksands of fears and doubts? Who do you go to? Or what do you turn to when you are beyond empty and you're completely spent and you're tired of the same routine day in, day out, that's constantly draining you, what do you turn to? As a father, a mother, husband, wife, single, depending on, it does depend on what sees your life, there are moments in life that drain you. When I ask you, what do you turn to? Turn to for hope. What is your source? Again, my prayer today is that learning about the encounter of Jesus and his Gentile mother, my hope is that this will encourage you, equip you to have a right understanding and a proper posture about yourself, your situation, and our God, Jesus Christ. Let's dive in together, family. Verse 24. And he got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not get the notice. Now, if we think about what's going on in, in the context, um, Jesus just spent time with the Pharisees in verses 1 through 23, and they had discussion in regards to what is considered clean 
and unclean. It was kind of a heated discussion. And in the actual situations and what he's learning and what they're discussing, Jesus Christ was sharing about, you know, we make decisions on who's clean and unclean based on human traditions over God's word. Ted last week even challenged us to think about what is God, what is God more concerned about, what is in the inside of us, than what is portrayed or what we portray to community about what we're really going on. God's more concerned about what's going on inside. Even verse 23, he said, all the evil things come from within the defiled person. So what Christ is definitely trying to wrestle with us is not what outside appearance looks like, but what's really going on deep down inside. So verse 24, again, as he is leaving this discussion, he is going to Tyree. Um, he actually goes into a point of the mindset of wanting to be in seclusion. He kind of wants to be away. Now, I ask the question to myself, why did the writer Mark decide to include this in his text? For me, what comes to mind is first, Christ goes into seclusion. It's a regular, normal thing of his life. If you read the Gospels, if you read his life and story, he does spend a lot of time of going away and spending time with the Father, going away to meditate, going away to pray. This was not something new for him. So I think that's a healthy model for us as we live in our lives, as we go through our desperate needs, is to have that time of seclusion with the Lord. And this was a common theme within his earthly ministry. Second reason is that Jesus goes into seclusion, in my opinion, is the purpose of escaping people who are coming to him for the wrong reasons. They want Jesus to become something that he is not meant to be in this moment to fulfill a temporal need. Now, honestly, that's a sermon within itself, but I don't have time to dive into that. But I kind of want to highlight that throughout scripture, there are moments where Jesus has done something, and because people see this miraculous miracle, they're trying to cling on him to do that one thing. When Jesus fed 5,000 people in the book of John, you hear that what they wanted to do was to take him away and make him their king, make him their provider, make him this genie so they could fill all the needs they have of their heart. Now, Jesus is the Lord of lords and king of kings. Jesus is the great healer. He is the great provider. But in this moment, he is sent to earth to be the suffering servant as Isaiah 53 projected. He was come to die, but to prove that he was a long-awaited Messiah, he did miracles. He performed healings. He fed 5,000 to prove to people, I am the Messiah the Jewish people have long awaited for. And so at times, he wanted to make sure that people had the right understanding of what he was there for. So sometimes he went to his seclusion. But the reality is that when Jesus Christ heals people, and I don't know if you've ever seen healing in your life, I have it, but if I heard someone heal someone, I want to kind of go see what's going on. And so his fame and his name was so amazing, so powerful, it started to spread beyond the borders of the Jewish nation. So this dude decided to do, do was take a 20-minute or 20-mile walk away from what's going on just to find seclusion. He goes to a Gentile region called Tyre. And the reason why he goes to a Gentile place is simply because he knows the Jewish people consider that place as an unclean, unholy, unworthy place to go. So he thought, let me go there so they won't follow me. Love, I love that little like juke move or Heisen move. It's like, I don't want to talk to you guys. Let me go where you won't follow me. But the reality is that, again, his fame and name has been overspilling to the Gentile nations that even though he goes away from Jewish people, people are still hearing about Christ. 
And that's where you find this moment of this Gentile woman coming to him and want to have a conversation. Let me read verse 25. Verse 25 states, Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Zyrophoenician by birth, and she was asking him to cast out her, a demon out of her daughter. Now immediately as Jesus was trying to escape and notice that, notice, escape notice in this Gentile region, he came face to face with a mother whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. Let's talk about this woman a little bit. Mark includes them in the Bible. There's a purpose for it. Every word that's inked in God's word has a purpose. Even the words but is one of the best words in the world. But. But in this text, you have a Gentile woman. So why is this Gentile woman included? Why not name her, but just declare who she is? I think the reasons are threefold. First, let's kind of explain who she is and the desperate need that she's coming to Christ for. And when you understand God's word, you kind of understand what's going on, you'll see the beauty that was what actually the text is bringing out for you to understand. So the first reason why I mentioned that she's a Gentile. From the Jewish perspective, a Gentile were often seen as pagans who did not know the true God and were unclean before him. With that, they did not associate, meaning Jews, with Gentile people. They did not associate with any of them, but rather they'll push them away out of the promised land, push them away to be associated, pushing them away so they won't be included in God's promises. So again, when you read Gentile, you read someone who's not naturally included in the Jewish culture. Two, she's a woman and she's alone. Some commentators argue that because she's the one who actually comes to Jesus Christ, kind of emphasize a little bit about her social status. One of her social status with her being a woman means that she might be a widow or might be divorced. That she, instead of having her husband go forth and plead on behalf of the family, she's the one who has to go to. And so you have some social characteristics and constructs of her that make people look down which is sad, but it's not the reality of how we as Christians should love those people. But the Jewish Pharisees sometimes will look them in distance and say, they're not worthy for my conversation. And also they might include that she might be a poor person. You can see in other parts of scriptures like Luke 7, when a centurion needs his son or servant to be healed, he sends someone ahead of him to talk to Jesus. And so for her have to go herself, kind of might em emphasize that she might not be rich that she might be poor. And sometimes the way we look at those people that actually are made in Imago Dei, sometimes we need to have a heart check on how we love the poor and broken, the widowed and divorced. How can we as a church of reconciliation come and love them? Again, that's number two. Third reason why Pharisees or Jewish people might not talk to this Gentile woman who's a mother, she has a child who's, who's demon-possessed. And we believe in the spiritual world here at Reconciliation Church is preached in the Bible. We'll dive deeper later into that. Um, not today in sermon, but um, the reality is that she had an unclean spirit dwelling in her daughter. Now in Jewish law, in the book of Leviticus, it has a whole understanding kind of breaking down of what we should do or the Jewish people at the time should do in regards to interact with unclean spirits. And one thing they do or they say is if you interact with one and you're not probably cleansed or you're not probably dealing the way the law lays out for them, you disregard them and push them away. And knowing mothers, when someone has a daughter or a son extremely sick, 
They don't leave their side. They stay, they nurture, they do what they can to love that family member. So I can see this woman, this mother, staying by their child's side. And because she's been by her child's side for such a long time, the Jewish Pharisees are saying, we can't be with you because you're unclean also. The reason why I'm kind of picturing this and showing you this is this is the type of woman who's coming to Christ who is so desperate she's run out of options and all she can go to is Christ. And honestly, that's the best place for her to go to. This mother who would have been rejected, casted out, and declared unclean by the Pharisees and man's traditions. Despite people's opinion of what she looked like on the outside, she disregarded all of man's thoughts of her, for her child was in desperate need of salvation. I think it's a beautiful thing to see her, a Gentile, hear about the name of Jesus. I kind of pictured a, a cookout. Not the restaurant, which is delicious, but an actual cookout that people go to. If you don't like cookout, we're praying for you. Anyways, if, we're, if you don't, they're at cookout, at a rest, not the restaurant, but just a big old barbecue, right? Having a good time. I can picture her with her family, and she's hearing about the name of Jesus spread around the Gentile nations. She can hear auntie in the corner like, yo, baby girl, let me tell you about something. I heard about this guy named Jesus. And he turns the water into wine. Not all these wine, but real wine, like a good Merlot. You know what I'm talking about? That's the guy I want to follow. Like I can see that, and her ears like perk up because she hears that. She hears about a guy who does a miracle. But okay, it's not a big deal for her. But then she hears her cousin. You know, I did hear about this guy named Jesus who, who was at a house, and he was teaching and preaching, and the, the roof just opened up, and a guy who was paralyzed just was lowered down, and this Jesus healed that man who was paralyzed. I can picture this woman hearing that second story. It's like, wait, this dude can turn water into wine and he can heal people? That's too good to be true. And I can see the grandfather just sit up with a rib in his hand. He goes, you remember that guy who was by the tomb? The guy who cut himself and he was naked because there was a demon-possessed man in him? He lived about the graveyards. You guys remember him? Like, yeah, we remember that dude. Jesus casted legion out of him. That demon is no longer in that man. He's now with some pigs. I can see this woman hearing these stories who is so desperate for salvation for their daughter. Hear the miracles this man is doing. Hear the, the reputation he's doing by healing people and casting out demons. What does she do? She takes an account of going to this man who has the power and ability to heal and leaving her daughter behind. Leaving her daughter behind into a situation of unknown, who can care for her, who can take care. Only mama can, but she knows that she needs to have something. She needs to go to something, a greater source or greater power that's outside this world to fix this world that she dwells in. And what she do? She goes. She goes and sees Jesus and immediately sees him and falls before him on the floor in a posture of surrender. And it's a beautiful thing to not look over in Scripture because her posture of bowing before Jesus Christ is declaring three things. One, a reverence for him. An awe, a respect of him. 
Two, it really shows how desperately her pleading is going to be that she has a fall front front of a man. Because third point, the reality of her pain and suffering has been taxing to her. And all she can do before Jesus Christ is fall flat face, bow and worship to him. Let's see how Jesus replies as he sees a Gentile mother fall flat in front of him. Verse 27. He, being Jesus, said to her, Let the children be fed first, because it isn't right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, if you're in group chat, if you know me and you're in group chats with me, I throw a lot of gifts all the time, or gifts, whatever you want to say, I really don't care. But when I first read that the first time, I pictured the gift of that dog that was just leaning back and heard someone say that, and he's like, what? And like, that was my reaction when I first read the word, we don't throw bread to dogs. Because on the surface level, that Jesus' response can come across as rude or harsh or insensitive. And I would agree with that. But let me unpack this a little bit more so you can understand that word, that phrase, that statement that he said to her has deep compassion woven through it for her. In the Jewish culture, Gentiles were considered no better than dogs. Let's just call it what it is. I'm not going to hide that truth. That's what sometimes they looked at each other as. Jewish people were human beings. Gentiles were dogs. Improper way of understanding the Mago day. And when people consider them as dogs, they belittle them and they do not see their value as that Christ and God has created them to be. Now, when you see the word dog in the Bible, it has two main meanings um, in the context of the Jewish culture. On one end, a dog could be considered a ravage, savage animal that runs about the streets, going through people's property, eating people's garbage, and even eating carcasses of dead animals. And because of Jewish law, when they see a ravaged, savage animal like a dog in the streets, they consider it unclean. That is something you do not go by. That's something you do not associate with. That is something you stay away from. When I was in Santiago, Chile, on a mission trip for a month and a half, dogs in Santiago are the way we look at squirrels in America. They are all over the place. And I'm a big dog lover. Now, and I saw a German shepherd one time. All I wanted to do was run out to grab it and hug it. But the police and the people in Santiago, Chile, said, it is illegal for you to touch a dog. I was like, what? They're like, no, you cannot touch dogs in Santiago, Chile. And the reason being why is because they have rabies. It's because they're affected. To touch them, to hold them is illegal. And that just broke my heart, just a way to look at that. But again, that's one way dogs is used in the Bible. But the second way dogs are used in the Bible is described and this is the word that Jesus actually uses when he calls a woman, the gentle woman, a dog. The, the second way is actually as a little puppy or a house dog. Now I have a house dog at my house right now. Some of you guys went to my, the 5k that we did with Corral and you saw a little Charlie man. Little white fluffy little dog running around with us running away from all the kids who were trying to pet it. He was like, no, get away from me. But like, Charlie is my man. We call him Charlie man. 
And my favorite thing about Charlie is sometimes when we're eating, instead of sitting, sitting next to my wife, Shamika, because she eats proper, and me, I'm a hungry man, I just eat as quick as I can, sometimes a bacon would fall on the floor. And I know the sacrilegious, I'm sorry, bacon does fall out of my plate. We try to do eggs next time, I know bacon, sorry. Anyways, uh, Charlie will try to run and grab it as quick as he can. And we're like, no, five second rule, pick that bacon up and eat it again. It's, it's just how I am, I'm sorry. But the reality is what we do. But at the same time, because he's a house dog, we treat him like family. Because he lives with us, he is family. And this is the thing that Jesus is describing this Gentile woman to be. It's a house dog. She is part of our family. She might not be an adult, but she's still part of our family. I think sometimes we need to look at people like that. They may not be our skin tone. They might not be our gender. They may not be our social status. They may not be a Republican, Democrat, or whatever you associate your, your ideology to. They're still family. They're still part of the Mago Day, And they still need to be treated respectfully, with love and grace, despite our differences. When Christ calls this person a dog, this woman a dog, what he's saying, no, you're my family. And it's such a sweet moment to read. When Christ declares this woman a dog, before he says that, Jesus says, let the children be fed first. What he is referring to in this moment is children as the children of Israel. He was saying that my ministry has a priority. My ministry is to take care of the children of Israel first and not to give what I've, the food that I have that is dedicated to the children to the dogs. So he wasn't trying to knock her. He wasn't trying to insult her. What he was trying to do is make sure they have clarity. I'm here to serve Israel first because I'm the promised Messiah. But my ministry to the Gentiles will continue after. He doesn't neglect her. He doesn't push her away. He says, first, I need to take care of business. And then I'm going to come and love on you. I think the most beautiful way that he allows the Gentiles to be loved is through you and I, the church, his disciples. We get to continue to love the nations in Southeast Raleigh I remember, and Nightdale. And I remember talking to Russell one time, and he was talking about Reconciliation Church and wanted to plant in Raleigh. And one of the biggest things that Latoya and Russell's heart was is to be at a place where the nations were. And Raleigh is a place for the nations to be. And we get to carry the hope that the world so desperately needs. But again, at this moment, Jesus says, first, the children need to be fed first. Just as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation. But notice the order he declares it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes First to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles. Again, it's not trying to segregate, but it's to fulfill the promises that God declares. So the children of the family are fed first, and afterward, the beloved family dogs are too. But notice her response. Verse 28. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dog under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now that's powerful family. That's a moment you don't skip over because if I was called a dog, we'll be in fight. But the way she accepted the reality is she said, even the dogs 
and eat the crumble food of the children. That's a powerful statement to read. But notice what she did not do. She did not get angry for the words Jesus said, nor did she rebuke him for calling him a dog. Even if you look at Matthew's account of this, verse 27, chapter 15, she doesn't even yell at Jesus for calling her an animal. Instead, she says, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbles that fall off their master's table. What she's saying here is that she fully understands who she is before God. She knows that she's a Gentile woman who is standing before a Jewish man. She knows that she is considered a dog in the world's eye. She knows that she has no other option because she has exalted all the world's options. She understands who she is. But she also understands that even the crumbs of Christ's ministries and teaching will be the remedy for her desperate need. Those crumbs will be the healing for her world, which is her daughter. And those dried out breadcrumbs would also be the salvation the world needs. She understands who she is. She knows it and accepts it. And she also knows that she is standing right before the holy living God. And she understands as Isaiah says, woe to me. Brother Psalmist says, I am just a worm before you. This Gentile woman, mother, has the right posture before a holy God, the right understanding of who she's intercounting with. She bowed and fell on her face and declared Jesus as Lord in that moment. She did not reject him. She did not harden her heart or have a stiff back like the Pharisees did in the first 23 verses of this chapter. For she knew that she was unclean before him. She knew that all of mankind was unclean and needed a savior, and that includes you and me. That's the beauty of this scripture. So much compound in just simple six verses. Read verse 29, how Christ responds. Then he told her, I can see him smiling like a father smiles to a child. Because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And when she went back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. Christ's words was enough for her. Christ's words were enough for her. She didn't beg him to come back home. She didn't give him a list of things that you need to do. Christ's word was enough for her. Is it for you? Just like in Matthew 8, Luke 7, John 4, other parts of scripture where Christ declares, your child is clean, the demon is gone, do not worry anymore. They just went home because Christ's word was enough. Is this book enough for you? As I prepare for this sermon, I always ask this question to myself. What does Christ want for me today in this text? 
I think the answer is for all of us to be like this young lady and come to him. To stop going to social media, to stop going to things of this world, to stop going to opinions of what the opinions of opinions are and go to Christ and Christ alone. Like this woman who desperately had a problem, she knew there was a sin issue and she needed a savior. I think as we think about coming to him, when we are empty and just desperate, I think the first thing you need to deal with is your vertical need. What I mean by that, what's the first thing she responds? Lord. She had a vertical problem that she had to deal with before any horizontal situation could be addressed. If you are family, he wants you to come to him with your situation and to make sure you are aligned with him first as Lord before he deals with your situation. If not, have that proper understanding and alignment of him vertically. He wants you to wrestle with him in the way that the way you view your ultimate need is aligned the way he is being Lord in your life in that moment. I think a lot of us, when we go through trials, we just want to get through it quickly. The Lord's like, no, I want to be in that trial with you. I want to be in that den. I want to be the fiery first. I want to be in the sea with you. My friend, if you do not know, if you're a part of his family, if you do not know Jesus as your father, Jesus wants you at first to deal with your vertical need too, which would make him your Lord and Savior. Can you look into your heart and honestly ask yourself, is he? And from there, and only after he addresses your vertical need will he be able to address your horizontal needs. So as you think about your current situation or the situation to come, when you wrestle with the things that, are, that become so desperate in your life needs, I ask you, do you approach the throne of grace first with the mindset of dealing with your horizontal needs before it's your vertical Lord, help me fix my family situation. Help me fix this work situation. Help me fix all this stuff that are horizontal, yet your heart is nowhere near aligned properly to what the Lord needs you to be. I want to ask this question like I mentioned at the beginning. What do you do to your time or your most desperate needs? Who do you turn to in those moments? How do you respond both internally and externally with those whispers in the dark. One of my best friends is here today, and I had the joy of watching this young man go from single to married to be a father. And I love his, his relationship with his son, Asher. I think it's one of the most beautiful things I get to watch. And my favorite thing is sometimes Jeff will go to Goose Goose, that's his nickname that he calls his son, and he will come to him, and they're just playing around, and then you see Asher just run away, and you hear just a thump. And you're like, oh boy, here we go. And you find out he just pulls something down, it's all over the floor. And Jeff, instead of being angry at Asher, he gets on a knee and say, son, why, why don't you just come to me? Why don't you just come talk to me? I'll be happy to help you. And I got to see this over and over and over. And I got to see how my father in heaven interacts with us. Instead of us going out trying to do things on our own 
and lay the destruction we do and make the mistakes and some of the scars we have, all Christ wanted us to do was to come to him first. Like, like, like the song, song, he's a good father. Just as Jeff delights that when Asher comes to him, God delights when you come to him. As he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who are weary, and I, not you, not the world, not your sin, I will give you rest. When the woman asked Jesus Christ to heal his daughter, she was not asking him if he was able to, but will he? She never questioned if he had the power or authority to address her desperate needs. And she did not take a no for answer when she came. I wonder how do we approach Christ with the things we so desperately need salvation for? I wonder how many times we go to Christ in our prayers in a posture questioning his ability and capability to save the unclean, the unrighteous, and the lost. To redeem the things that are broken within us. To break and bring liberty to the chains of sin that bring a stronghold on our lives. If I'm honest, I deal with that every day. One of the hardest things about me going to Miami and seeing my dad and my sisters is having hope that they can be saved. Just your brother in Christ being real. I have a little sister, I have an older sister in California whose fruit does not match up with her faith. And I hope the Lord can break her. Because I'd rather have her broken before eternity than her be eternity broken. What is your desperate need? What is the thing that you need to come to Christ for? Will you fall before him, deal with their vertical need of him being Lord before he addresses anything else? And like a father who's asked you to come to him, will you go? Father, we thank you that you're still good and you have not given up on us. I thank you, Lord, that you're continually working on us through our hard times, our prideful moments, and the moments that we have to grow in. I ask you, Father, to continue to work in us. I ask you, Father, to help us to be so desperate and broken that all we need to do is you. Break us now, change us now, for eternity is on the line. In Christ's name I pray, amen.